0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship,
2: where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Want a low-key fireworks experience? Bring a lawn chair and set it up in the children's area of the parking lot on July 3rd at 8 p.m. and watch Saxie's firework display without all the crowds. We will have bottles of water, popsicles, sidewalk chalk, and bubbles. Kids, bring your bike or scooter or a ball to throw around. It may not be the best view there is, but it will be a great time with your Firewheel family. Bonus, you don't have to use porta-potties.
3: Sunday, June 25th, immediately following the service, there will be an important meeting to give updates to our Firewheel family. There will not be childcare for this event so all of our attendees can come. Parents plan to bring some snacks and coloring pages for the little ones.
4: Sunday, June 18th, will be a parent-child dedication. If you would like to
3: take part, contact Barbara at FirewheelFellowship.com by June 11th. Name and picture due by June 13th. A
4: great serving opportunity we have here at Firewheel is King's Closet, a clothing ministry benefiting the homeless of Dallas. Come sort clothes for those in need this coming Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. There are also alpacas.
1: For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at com slash events, or you'll find us on social media. Good morning, Firewheel. Oh man, you know, I'm gonna ask you to do that again. Good morning, Firewheel. Awesome. God is good? Now go tell five people.
0: Good morning, Firewall family. If you can, go ahead and find your seat. How's everyone doing this morning? (laughs) We are so happy you are here this morning. If this is your first time, welcome. If it's your second or hundredth time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. If you're new, we would love to get to meet you. So just come by after service, and we can say hi. Um, for everyone watching online, we love you. We miss you. And also, I guess I should introduce myself. I am Vanessa. I'm Chris Nelson's wife, his better half. So I agree with that. <laughs> I second it. But anyways, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. We love you all.
1: I don't even have to speak now, right? <laughs> all right, so uh, good morning. My name is Chris Nelson, as she said. So there's three things we're going to get out of service this morning. First of all, we are going to worship. You guys okay with that? Yeah. And then we are going to pray. We're going to give God the reverence he deserves, and then we are going to hear an awesome message on James this morning. You guys okay with that? All right, man. If you guys will stand, we've got a couple more worship songs for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I just thank you, man. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the cross this morning. I think that thank you that you gave your life for us. Sometimes we forget why we're here. God, help us to remember why we come to church on Sunday. We come here for you. This is not about us. This is not about us coming to a place to, uh, to, to you know, do something out of the ordinary. It's it's just for you. I mean, it's, it's just for you. We are here to worship you. So give us a heart of worship this morning. Help us to worship you. And just, uh, man, spirit and in truth. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.
0: No. Amen.
5: Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Doug Starkey. I'm an occasional teacher of the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights and this morning I have the privilege to introduce this time in our worship that we call Communion. Communion is a time to pause, to reflect, and most of all to remember. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not something we do lightly or simply out of ritual or routine. This is a part of our worship. It's a moment to pause and consider our great need and God's great provision. We were helpless sinners. No amount of good works or religious rituals could ever make us right before a perfectly holy God. In Hebrews 9 the author tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Blood had to be shed to pay for our sin, and God provided the perfect blood the blood of the only perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to pay our debt. So as we celebrate communion, we remember. In the wafers of unleavened bread, we remember the real, sinless body of Jesus Christ. And in the cup of juice, the fruit of the vine, we remember the pure blood of Jesus poured out to cleanse us. Let us pray. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Blessed are you who redeems your people. We thank you, Lord, for the body of Jesus who lived among us, who knows our weaknesses, and who willingly gave himself as payment for our sins. We thank you that by his precious blood, we are washed clean from all our sins, and by faith in him, we have eternal life and fellowship with you. We remember as we worship. Amen. Come, let us worship.
3: Well, good morning, Firewheel family. It is good to be with you all, and it is good to be in the house of the Lord. I love the fact that we celebrate communion here every Sunday, by the way. I hope that you enjoy that as well as we tap into this ancient practice and we do something and we join with literally believers all across the world as we remember the great price that was paid for our sins. I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Adrian Pina, and I have the opportunity to serve as the transitional pastor here at Firewheel, and we are really grateful that you are here, those of you who are joining us online, welcome, and I am looking forward to getting into the word with you this morning. So if you have your Bible and you want to open up or your electronic device, or you can follow us along on the screen, we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 2, we're going to start immediately in verse 1. So James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I've entitled today's message, Play No Favorites. Let me say that again. I've entitled it, Play No Favorites. So as we are journeying over these last number of weeks, and we will continue for uh, several weeks uh, after this, to continue working ourselves through the book of James. I just want to remind you about what we talked about last week. So last week we talked about the relationship between hearing the word And Doing the word because James asserts the fact that you cannot just be a hearer of the word only But you also have to be a doer And we saw that James gave three basic warnings to his listeners to caution them against being only hearers and not doers He talked about pretending instead of hearing Deceiving instead of acting and then we talked about false religion instead of pure devotion And as a way of reminder, our one true statement from last week is that there is no benefit to hearing God's word and not acting upon it. There is no benefit to hearing God's word and acting upon it. Remember we serve a living God so it's a living word and it's not just for information but to transform us and the word of God needs to be applied to the life of the believer. So today we are going to tackle a very relevant issue a very sensitive issue, but here at Firewill, we are not ashamed to be able to look at the tough passages of scripture. And we are certainly not ashamed to be able to engage in conversation where it is necessary to speak into a situation that's very relevant in our own lives where the scripture speaks very loudly about it. So today, as you can tell a little bit by the title, we are going to talk about favoritism or specifically discrimination is what we're going to talk about. So I am going to use the word favoritism at times. You're going to hear because that's the way it's translated in the ESV. And the word discrimination almost interchangeably. So when you think of those two words, I want you to think of them in sequence together uh, for the purposes of our discussion this morning. So before we get into the text, now I have here a $1 bill, okay? Now we've all before used a vending machine, right? So we've all used a vending machine. And today's vending machines are a little bit more complex. So if you go up to a vending machine today, you can put in cash still, so you can put in your dollar bill. Or they likely have where you can tap or even pay with your card, so you can use Apple Pay or Google Pay. But the purpose of a vending machine, you go up to it, you select the snack that you want, you have your money, you go ahead and insert your money, you go ahead and you receive that snack. Hopefully if it doesn't get stuck y'all ever have it get stuck on you before and then you do the gorilla shake You're trying to shake it to get your your candy bar out. We've all had that happen before, right? And then unsuccessfully by the way, usually the shaking never works So you just kind of pout and walk away and just realize your defeat at that moment Uh, But that being said so this dollar bill is there's certain aspects of this dollar bill that make it United States currency. We can look at the prints, we can look at the paper, we can look at all these different things. I know that this is actually a dollar bill with George Washington on it. This is United States currency. Now if I took this dollar bill, which was already folded up in my pocket, so now I tried to straighten it out, say if I took this dollar bill right now and just crumbled it up, right? So I crumbled up the dollar bill and then I try to, is this still a dollar bill? Right? It's still a dollar bill. The the appearances may have changed a little bit. It's got a few more wrinkles in it now. But it's still a dollar bill at the end of the day. So I might go try to use it in the vending machine and then you'll know what happens in relationship to that. But how about if I take this dollar bill and I go and I stomp on it. So I stomp on this dollar bill. Now I woke you all up. So is this still a dollar bill? Is this still be? Can I still redeem this for something? Uh, if you can even find anything for now, for now for a dollar. Uh, but that being said, if I go to the store and I want to redeem it still for a buck, it's still a buck. It doesn't matter the fact that it's been wrinkled, tattered, or whatever. It's still intact, so it's still a dollar bill. Now, interestingly enough, when you use a dollar bill in a vending machine, do you know that the vending machine discriminates against the money? Seriously, you'll see what I mean. So you've all had this experience, if I take this really tattered dollar bill now and try to pop this in a vending machine, what's likely going to happen? It's going to spit it out, right? It's going to spit it out, but it's spitting it out and it's discriminating against the currency not based upon the value but based upon the appearance. It's the appearance of the way that the dollar actually looks. It's still a dollar, right? We've concluded that this is still a dollar bill. It has not changed, so it's still worth the same amount of currency. But I do one of these numbers. You ever do one of these? So I'm over here trying to straighten it out. So I try to straighten it out. I'm blowing on it. You know, I'm doing whatever. I'm like, you know, you rub it. Whatever you do to try to get it straight enough where the machine will actually accept the money. But what the machine is doing is the machine is looking for a certain appearance on the dollar bill, to know that it is a dollar bill in order for it to accept it. It will reject and spit out everything that does not meet its standard, so to speak. It will reject it because of its appearance, not based upon its value. So listen to this. The word discrimination carries many different meanings, some of which is not bad, actually, if you look at the dictionary. But let's define the term in the manner in which we are going to understand it today. Because just as a vending machine may discriminate against the value of a specific bill or because based upon its appearance, I want to make sure that we're in the same dictionary, so to speak, that we are understanding the term in the same way. So for our purposes today, the word discrimination means this. It is the practice of treating unfairly a person or group of people differently from others. It is the practice of treating unfairly a person or group of people differently from others. Discrimination can take on many different forms, which we'll hit on some in today's text. It can look, either, it can look racial, it could be based upon education, it could be gender related, it could be related to economic status, political affiliation. Our, our whole entire culture is really built upon, even though we don't live in a place where we supposedly have a class system, there is classism in the United States in many ways. I'm about to go on a flight here soon, and even on a flight, what do you walk by first? You walk by first class, right? Those are the VIPs, and then if you're traveling like me, you're traveling in coach. So you walk into the back and you walk into coach, but you passed all those other people that got special seating already. So already there's been, and there's a barrier which you can't pass. You can't pass if you in coach to get to first class or else you will be graciously escorted back to your position then at that point. So we live in a culture where this is widely accepted in many different ways, and it looks very different. James is going to tackle this, tr- this issue head-on, and he's going to—remember, I want you to remember something. James, uh, as Kevin presented in week one, I believe that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He is talking to Christians. So he's saying when you hear these strong words that he's going to use, he's talking to us. He's talking to people that would associate and say and call themselves believers in Jesus. That's very important to note when we see some of the strong language he uses. So here's my one truth statement for you today. Discrimination is wrong because it violates God's mandate to love our neighbor. Discrimination is wrong because it violates God's mandate to love our neighbor. In our text today, James is going to compare two groups of people. And he's going to use this issue of favoritism as a jumping off point to talk about the heart of these two different groups of people. He's going to talk about one group of people who have a judgmental heart, they discriminate against others, and those who have a merciful heart, who exhibit the character and heart of God. So as we get into the text today, let's start in James chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and he is first going to describe those with a judgmental heart. Look at verse 1, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality is another way you can say either you can insert the word favoritism there or that's kind of the same idea what he's talking about. Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who, hear, who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit at my feet. Look at verse 4. Here's his then challenge to that. Have you not then made distinctions or discrimination amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts, is what he says. So James is making it very clear. Very first verse. That you are not supposed to show favoritism, partiality, discrimination, uh, the same kind of term, okay? Remember in the previous chapter that James ends where we talked about last week, where he talked about those who exhibit pure devotion and pure religion are the ones who care for the needy, for the orphans and the widows as a mark of their pure religion. They have a heart of compassion. And chapter 2 really is the continuation, I think, of this. As he started the conversation of talking about those who have that type of heart, now he's going to get more into the heart issue and he's going to bring it even further into light. So James sets up a comparison. A comparison between a rich man, at least in outward appearance, let's say it that way. He's making very explicit to use uh, imagery that brings right to your mind what this person would look like. So a rich man, at least outwardly, and then he's talking about a poor man and the treatment that they both received. So how is the rich man described? The rich man is wearing a gold ring, which was a sign of wealth in the ancient world. Often those who were rich wore several rings as a visible sign of their wealth. So, looking like Mr. T. You know, he's coming, he's got the gold, he's got the gold everything, right? And he's walking up and he's coming up and he's got all this different gold as signs of wealth. He has fine clothing. And it's interesting is that in the Greek, it actually means sparkling or glittering clothing. It's clothing to make a point. When that person walks in, it's like they got a little shine going. You know, they got these expensive clothes going on. This is the guy who if we were to make a a connection to today, this is the guy rolling up in the church with the really, really nice car, with the expensive watch, the expensive clothes, looking like he's a walking billboard for Gucci. You know, he's just walking and you know that he's got money, Because of, based upon, or at least he's got the status or appearance of wealth, based upon all the visible signs that you see. The nice shoes, the watch, you know, the nice car, the nice clothes, all those kind of things. So this is the guy who rolls up to church in that way. But then the poor man is described as having shabby clothes. The image that James conjures up for us is typical of a homeless person in our day. A person dressed in mismatched, stained, smelly rags, unkept appearance, that kind of thing. But interestingly enough, apparently this church has VIP seating. Because the ushers see the rich dude and they basically say, hey, uh, why don't you come up over here and we'll give you the prime seat. So they walk into him. Can you imagine walking into Firewell Bible Fellowship on a Sunday, we had VIP seating And then Greg Simmons or one of the other guest services attendants come and bring towel service and a bottle of water or something like that, patting people's face down, you know what I mean, white glove kind of service or whatever, and be like, here, here's our VIP section, roped off to everybody else with somebody standing there just watching, just waiting. Like, you can't come over here, this ain't, you in the wrong spot. That sounds so dumb, because it is, in reality it kind of sounds like it's tongue in cheek, but it sounds... Trivial, and it sounds like foreign, but it's not foreign, actually. A number of years ago, Jen and I visited Philadelphia. So when I lived in Jersey, it wasn't that long to visit Philly. So we went to Philadelphia, and we did all the historical stuff. One of the visits, the places we visited was called Christ Church. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, uh, Christ Church was founded in 1695— And the current building, which you can go in tours, and it's actually still an active church, was built in 1744. It was the birthplace of the American Episcopal Church. Members of the Continental Congress and presidents attended there. As a matter of fact, they have a very famous cemetery where Ben Franklin is buried, okay, and others that are buried that is attached to this church. You can go there today, I was trying to find the picture and I thought of this, God brought this to my remembrance later. You could go there today, when you walk into the tour at Christ Church, they still have a roped-off pew that has a plaque where George Washington sat. And here's what's interesting. So George Washington, being the president when he was in Philadelphia, he would visit Christ Church, he had his own seat, but did you know that it was not uncommon in the 18th and 19th century to pay something called a pew tax. So what? And you can go online and actually see digital copies of the ledger from Christ Church way back in the late 1700s that shows names in the tax that they paid in order to get their seat every single week. So elders, I got a new fundraising idea, okay? But seriously. They actually paid money to get the seat every single week. So they called it a pew tax and it was not unusual. It wasn't usual just to this church, it was actually very widespread. So even back in the 18th century, we had VIPs at church. Guess what, spoiler alert, it was even way before then. But just to give you an example of the reality of this was happening even back then. There's something within our human nature. I don't know what it is. Something within our human nature that tends to elevate people and wants to elevate them to a place. There's a certain level and a very fine line sometimes when it comes to respect and honor and idolatry and worship. There's a very fine line there because I believe give honor to whom honors is due and the scripture is very clear about that. But there's a very fine line between that and it's, Not a hard step to then make where that person becomes idolatrous in your sight. I never, ever, ever want to be put in that position. I'm a human, just like George Washington was a human, just like Benjamin Franklin was a human. Have all my flaws and my many scars. We are not meant to be exalted to a place where we are worshipped. And everything within our human dispositions wants to exalt people, and Jesus is saying, no, nobody's to be exalted. I am the only one worthy of worship. If you look back at verse 4, James charges the people with two different sins. Look at what he says. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? The two sins he's charging them with is discrimination amongst themselves, making that. And then secondly, in their hearts, they've become evil judges. He asked them a rhetorical question to which they have to answer yes. They discriminated amongst themselves by creating division, unnecessary division even within their church. They said there are rich people who get preferential treatment, there are poor people who have to sit at the feet, was the role of a servant. So they were saying that some of you, y'all can either sit at the back, or I'm going to put you in the place of a servant and you sit at my feet. And James is like, no, 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 no. You have made unnecessary distinction creating class division even within your own assembly. We can see how this easily would overlay into our context today. Whether it's rich versus poor. We love categorizing people in groups. Whether it's the accepted ethnic group, the minority ethnic group and a minority ethnic group whether it's a division in age whether it's political divisions whether you are red blue somewhere in the middle of the color spectrum whatever it may be even theological divisions can we coexist with people that have different beliefs that are have some levity where these are non-essential Christian doctrines and we divide over the stupidest things seriously And this is what He is warning us against. You know discrimination occurs when people are guided by faulty standards. That's when it occurs. God's Word for those who are God's people has to be the standard and guide for our attitude and actions or else we will never be able to live as the body of Christ. Hear what I just said again, God's Word has to be the standard for God's people To guide our attitude and actions toward others or we will never be able to live as the body of Christ. That's the way he wants us to live. And don't think that this doesn't happen everywhere because James is talking to church people. He's talking to y'all, he's talking to me. James warned us in chapter 1 to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but thinking of the world can often creep into the way in which it guides our actions and our thoughts instead of being guided by the Word of Christ. And so just because the world tends to create divisions and wants to make everything left right, everything has to be one way or the other way, things are not that black and white. God sees the world in a whole lot of color. There's a whole lot in between. But even as we try to keep ourselves unstained, sometimes wrong thinking leads to wrong action and then can cause unnecessary discrimination within the body of Christ. The second sin he charges them with is being evil judges. When Christians discriminate toward other people in the church, what they are doing is they are implicitly claiming that I have the ability to make a judgment to stand over you and that's only something God can do. We put ourselves in the place of God. Please hear this, James is not, what James is addressing is he's addressing a matter of the heart. He's not talking about a specific individual sin, he's not talking about, okay, look at this, even though he's talking about discrimination, the sin takes place in the heart that involves itself then in action, but it's really a matter of the heart. So he's not saying it's a sin to be rich or poor. He's not even making a claim about the validity of what those things are, they're not good or bad in that way. He's not saying that, but what he is saying is he's saying it's sinful to have a judgmental heart towards somebody who is. And I would say it works both ways, whether that person is rich and is using that for the kingdom and is living in a way that pleases God. Do you know that one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of giving? I believe that God has people in his body that he has given them a very strategic and very skill set needed to make. Financial gain in order that they can support the work of God. I genuinely believe that But then on the other side you have those that might financially lack But even those None of them. It's not positive or negative in relationship to that. What is positive or negative is the relationship of the heart toward that person This is where it gets really ugly ladies and gentlemen And I believe things like this is what turns people away from the gospel is when we are subconsciously, or sometimes even blatantly consciously, we are putting ourselves in the place of God in judgment over another individual based upon our own standard. When God is saying that we're not supposed to be doing this, not in my house, this isn't supposed to be happening. And that's why James has given us a course corrective here. If I could simply say it this way, here's a principle that I believe is so key. The gospel is for all people. The gospel is for every walking, living, breathing person on the face of the planet. From the person that we may consider to be the most vile and wicked from our own human standards to the person that we consider to be that good neighbor who's down the road. The gospel is from the ghetto to the White House. It goes from Kempton Street in New Bethon, Massachusetts, an urban inner city where I was living and raised, to Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. It goes all the way to Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. It goes everywhere. The gospel is for every person every living breathing person because every living breathing person is created in the image of God every living individual has the mark of their creator where the creator created them he loved them so every person the gospel extends to those individuals that's the persons this the people we agree with the people we disagree with The gospel is for all people. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Verse 6. But you have dishonored. I love that word, and that's the word you should highlight. He says, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court. Interesting. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? In a few weeks, Jen and I and Kevin and, uh, Kevin and Jeanette have the opportunity to go to Ecuador. I love, I've fallen in love with the country and I've fallen in love with the people. This will be my fourth time going to Ecuador for us to be able to do ministry there. And to say Ecuador is definitely not lavish by any means and people live very, very menial kind of lives. I mean, pastors are working their tails off because their churches can't financially support them so they're working two or three jobs and still doing full-time ministry. And ministering to some very real needs as there is poverty there and as there is other different needs that are very, very evident. But the thing that's funny is every time I go back to that country and I work with some of these pastors now, this will be my third full time working with the same group of pastors, I am blown away by their incredible faith. I'm blown away by the incredible faith of people that have very little but are so rich in faith. The scripture tells us that we lack nothing when it comes to we have, give, we have been given every spiritual blessing under heaven. We have everything in which we need. but. I I was pondering this and I'm thinking, why, why is that the case? Why is that the case that these people who have such meager means, who don't even have really fully education, especially theological education, that I've been blessed to be able to have, how can they do such amazing things for the kingdom of God and just are seeing miraculous things happen? Those who have little physically speaking, why are they often the most richest in faith? And I think the answer is actually really simple. You know why? Because they know what it means to be dependent upon God. The problem is that sometimes we could use a little suffering. Sometimes we could use a little trial and tribulation because I do think in the western church we grow very comfortable and fall into a sense of normal and because of that we lose dependency at times. You and I are always naturally at a state where we are drifting. The question is, where are we drifting toward? Are we drifting toward God or away from him? Because have we placed ourselves in a position where we're being dependent on ourselves and not on him? So where are we navigating toward? I want to be more dependent on God. And you and I being dependent on God doesn't mean that you have no money in your bank account. It's a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the mind, it's a matter of where am I directing my life? Am I always going to Him? Do I recognize that He is the true source? Is my life utterly directed and guided by His leading? Am I so dependent upon Him, so in tune with Him, and recognize my utter need for Him? In John chapter 15, it talks about how when we are connected to the vine, it says that apart from him, we can do nothing. You and I, ladies and gentlemen, have nothing that we can ever do or give to God outside of us being totally dependent and connected to him. And that's why discrimination is wrong. Discrimination is wrong because it... It violates God's mandate to love that neighbor, to love that one who is poor, maybe physically speaking, but is rich in faith because they are utterly dependent upon God. I'd much rather be in that position than the other. Let's look at the person with the merciful heart, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture or the golden rule, so to speak, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of it all. Look at the next section, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, quoting literally the Gospels when Jesus utters these words, and it says, also said, do not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We're going to revisit that in a second. So to speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, as opposed to the law itself. We'll see the distinction in a moment. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now James introduces the alternative. What is the alternative to the rich man and poor man distinction where the church has has shown discrimination toward the one who has the outward appearance of being rich? What is the alternative to that? The alternative, according to this, is to follow in according to the royal law and to show love to that neighbor as if you loved yourself. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus very blatantly describes who a neighbor is. Because the question comes up, well then who is my neighbor? Who am I the one I'm, am I supposed to actually love? Well, I think according to the parable of the Good Samaritan in other places, the neighbor is basically any other person. It doesn't mean the person that lives right connected to your fence and you share friends with that is necessarily next door. That is your neighbor, but our neighbor, in using that general term, is all the other individuals in which we have relationship and connection with. Every person is and can be our neighbor. And Jesus defines and demands the act of love of that neighbor. He defined a neighbor as anyone in need, and he urged us to show love to a neighbor by responding to their needs. Imagine this. Imagine we truly could think of ourselves and view others as we do ourselves, don't you think that that would have the ability to change the way in which we view them? If we think of others truly like we thought of ourselves and take care of ourselves, when Jesus actually is quoting and he quotes the, the golden rule, so to speak, he talks about we take care of our bodies, we do all those other kind of different things. If we truly thought of others like we do for the care that we give to ourselves, don't you think that would change things? Don't you think something would be different in that way? If we see people just like we would see ourselves as we look in the mirror, James pulls no punches. He tells them that if you're doing the opposite, then you're in sin and you've been convicted by the law of God. And this is a reference to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 19.15 where favoritism was forbidden. You can look it up yourselves, but Leviticus 19.15. So my question to you is how many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? One. One. You have to break one law in order to be a lawbreaker. And I love how James says, he's alluding to a couple, he's alluding to the biggies, so to speak. And he says that basically you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. I'm like, what do you mean I've broken them all? Well, I think he makes the point, and I'll, I'll set this up and we'll talk a little bit about this. God's law in the Old Testament, well, let's just talk about ten commandments for a moment. They can't be seen as individual laws unto themselves setting up like, a, like ten bowling pins. We like to think about them as like individual ones. Like, okay, I'm good on this one, I'm good on that one, I'm good on that one, so I'm really bad on the lying, so, you know, I'll keep that one down there, whatever. And we think about them in terms of like as if they're bowling pins. Like you take one away and you still have some standing and you're dealing with some of those other ones. However, you can't knock them down one at a time. It's comprehensive because the the actual Ten Commandments reflect not only the character of God— They reflect our relationship to God, and they reflect our relationship to our neighbor. It's total. It's complete. It's a complete package. One that cannot be separated. So in breaking one law, you would be guilty in result of them all. It's like throwing a rock at a pane of glass, and then it spiders out, and it breaks the whole entire thing. One point of impact, but shatters the whole entire thing. For us as New Testament believers, we now are under the royal law, which is the foundational bedrock of loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving God with all our hearts, our souls, our minds. But if we do not live according to that law, then we are judged under the law of liberty. Well, I mean, we live according to that law, and then we are judged under the law of liberty, he says, which I believe refers to the will of God. So we have freedom— Unlike Old Testament saints, we don't have a laundry list of things that we have to do in order to approach God, to be able to worship God in certain ways. There's a lot more liberty that we have, although in that liberty, what underlines that is this bedrock of love your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, undergirds that whole entire thing. And as that's undergirded, we are judged according to the way that we live our lives and our liberty, in our liberty, what do we do with it? In our liberty, are we having our actions and our attitudes reflect the character and nature of God completely, or are we living in a way that is dishonoring to him? It's interesting that James puts up the idea of discrimination against adultery and murder as an example. Seems a little extreme, James. What do you mean putting it up against that? But let me give you an illustration for a moment. Imagine I go into court, and I tell the judge, hey, judge. You know, it's my court date. I come out in my jumpsuit and I tell the judge, you know, judge, I realize that I'm on trial for murder, but I was always faithful to my wife. So maybe you should overlook this charge because i would never committed adultery. You know, I'm good. You know, I'm really a good person in that way because I was always faithful to my wife. Even as I've been locked up in here, uh, yeah, I might have murdered... Joey, but still I was faithful to my wife, so, you know, can you cut a brother a little break? The reality is, is it doesn't matter if you follow some rules, not committing adultery, but break others because you are guilty of breaking the law. For the New Testament believer, the law serves as our schoolmaster showing us our need for Christ. The law shows us that we can't measure up to God's perfect and holy standard. It shows us our utter need for a savior. But James is likening it to telling people, you know what, we have to be agents of mercy. He's not talking about divine mercy. He's talking about human mercy, that we would express that mercy, that as God expresses mercy toward us, mercy triumphs over judgment as it relates to those who put their faith in Jesus. Since we have received mercy, we can now be agents of mercy. Mercy will always triumph over judgment. If you want a church that is healthy, You're going to have a church that is full of people of mercy. People full of compassion. That's what he's telling us. He's telling us, be merciful in your heart. Be compassionate as ones who have received mercy. Be conduits, extending that mercy. Because here's the principle for you. Is that having a heart of mercy is what reflects the character of God. Our God is merciful. You and I do not deserve anything that we receive from him, and yet he extends it to us because of his great mercy for which he loved us. You serve a merciful God. And I don't know about you, but every day I am utterly aware of how much I need his mercy. I am utterly aware of how much I need his grace and that God has an infinite amount that he wants to continue to give to you. And now that you have received mercy, be merciful. Those of you that have received forgiveness, now we are called to forgive. Those who have now received the love of God, we are called to be agents of love. All of the things in which we have received ourselves, those characters, ristics and those things are being changed in us that we would be conduits of that as well, that we could be the expressions of Jesus in a world that so desperately needs mercy. Don't you believe we live in a world that needs a little mercy? We live in a world that desperately needs grace. We live in a world that desperately needs so many different things. I'm going to finish with this illustration and summarize. A young mother once approached the French general, Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied to her that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. The mother said, but I don't ask for justice. The mother explained, I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. At the end of the day, this is reflective of what God did for us in salvation Mercy has nothing to do with worth, it has everything to do with our state of heart, it has everything to do with a loving God, it has everything to do with a God who has entered into human history to make it possible for sinful human beings to have relationship with him. It has everything to do with the initiative and the love of God. It has everything to do with a changed life that has been transformed by Jesus. Mercy is when we are extending to people what they don't deserve. But here's the beautiful thing about that. This is where that breaks down discrimination. It breaks down discrimination because it doesn't make a judgment call on who deserves to receive it. Mercy has nothing to do about worth. It has everything to do about the character, love, and nature of the God to whom you've received it from. So that's why it breaks down the walls. That's why mercy will always triumph over judgment. We make petty judgments about many things. But will we have a judgmental heart or will we have a merciful heart toward others? Let's summarize this for you. So our one true statement was this, that discrimination is wrong because it violates God's mandate to love our neighbor. We saw in this passage, and I would encourage you to reread it a number of times, And I've been encouraging you through this series just to read the book of James at one sitting. It's a short book. You could be able to get through it pretty quickly and just continue to read it and read it over. We saw how James is comparing a judgmental heart, those who are preferring the rich over the poor, so to speak. And at nature, their heart is showing that they are making judgments, that the gospel really is not for all people, or all people are not created equal in that sense. Or are we going to be the ones who exhibit the merciful heart? who love our neighbors as ourselves, who reflect the character of God, and who are ones that will be conduits where mercy always triumphs over judgment. So I leave you with a question today. Is there some area in my life where I've shown discrimination toward another person? And I will say this, we all have at one point or another. We all have. If you've been walking alongside the road and you go to the other side of the road because of another person, because you see them and you make a judgment about them, you passively have discriminated against them. And I'm not saying that to be judgmental. I'm saying that because we all need to have a wake-up call in relationship to that. We all need to see our own biases and we all need to see where our heart stands on the matter. Maybe you grew up with a certain viewpoint toward certain people, maybe it was a bad experience that has changed your heart. Whatever it can be, we can repent and have God change our hearts so that way we can have hearts of mercy. We need to allow the Bible to be our guide as we navigate interpersonal relationships and we navigate our relationship with Jesus and with others. We need to allow God's word to wash our minds and our hearts so that way it produces life-giving fruit in our lives. I would encourage you, we need to treat all people as people who are worthy of the gospel, people who are redeemable. Every person is redeemable, no matter how far we think they may may have fallen. And for us to think any otherwise puts us in the position of God where we think that the gospel doesn't relate to that person. Well, that person never could be saved. That's not your call. Salvation is not about you, it's about him. It's not about what you do, it's about what he did. Salvation is about his love toward people, not your discrimination toward people. I believe in a big God, and I believe that God has the ability to save those to whom he desires and those who who will respond to him. It's not my call to not extend the offer to every person that I possibly can because every living individual is worthy of that call. Let's pray. So Lord, as we tackle through a very tough issue today, and as we wrestle through the scriptures, our hearts are often challenged by the reality of our own wickedness. Lord, our hearts are so multi-layered and there's so many things within us at times that lurk beneath the surface that we don't even know. Lord, I know in my life I have been in one who has experienced discrimination And I know that I have subconsciously and consciously at times exhibited it toward others as well. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that you would allow your word to wash over our minds and wash over our hearts, Lord. That we wouldn't just be hearers in this sense, but we would be doers in this very real sense. And that we would come to you and ask that you would change us and transform us. Help us to be people of mercy. Lord, that your love would shine forward in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank You for Your Word, even as challenging as it may be. Thank You that we can be changed on a day-to-day basis by the power of the Spirit, by the working of Your Word in our hearts and in our lives. We love You and praise You in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to ask the prayer team to come forward and we're going to take the opportunity to worship as we do and we respond every Sunday. I'm going to ask You to stand with us as we worship. Take this opportunity to process what what you've heard and if God is dealing with your heart in that way. And if there's a way that any one of these prayer partners can pray with you, we'd love to pray with you for whatever your need may be. This is a way as a church that we show our love toward you and we show that we support you and we wanna be with you as you navigate through life. So let's take an opportunity to worship and to pray.
1: Hey before we uh, get this last song going on, um, so this is a big day for our worship team today. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we don't have charts up here today, um, so I put these guys through uh, the ringer every week, and our worship team, they do an amazing job. So can we give them a round of applause real fast?
3: Be seated. We're going to go in and receive the morning offering. We worship every Sunday not only through the word, through singing, but also through giving. It's a way for us to give back a portion of what belongs all to God anyway, and a way to acknowledge that we are able to use these funds to bring Him glory and to do ministry on earth. And so thank you for your gracious giving, and I'm just going to pray a blessing over that. And if it's your first time here at Firewheel, we'd love to say hi to you. Um, As you exit the auditorium, there's a connection center in the lobby. One of our guest services attendants would love to give you a special gift for worshiping with us. No strings attached. And We just want to thank you for your time and then just see if there's any questions we can answer and see how we can come alongside of you and serve your family here at Firewheel. So let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to give. We thank you that you are the giver of all things, of life and every blessing because every good and perfect thing comes from you. I pray that you would cause this offering to multiply, that we may continue to steward it well and use it for your glory, and for the ministry that you have called us here uh, at Firewill. Thank you for your faithful provision, in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Hello, and welcome to Firewell Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused.
2: Here's what's happening at Firewell. Want a low-key fireworks experience? Bring a lawn chair and set it up in the children's area of the parking lot on July 3rd at 8 p.m. and watch Saxe's firework display without all the crowds. We will have bottles of water, popsicles, sidewalk chalk, and bubbles. Kids, bring your bike or scooter or a ball to throw around. It may not be the best view there is, but it will be a great time with your Firewheel family. Bonus: You don't have to use porta-potties. Sunday, June 25th, immediately
3: following the service. There will be an important meeting to give updates to our Firewheel family. There will not be child care for this event, so all of our attendees can come. Parents plan to bring some snacks and
1: coloring pages for the little ones.
4: Sunday, June 18th, will be a parent-child dedication. If you would like to take part, contact Barbara at firewheelfellowship.com by June 11th. Name and picture due by June 13th. A great serving opportunity we have here at Firewheel is King's Closet, a clothing ministry benefiting the homeless of Dallas. Come sort of clothes for those in need this coming Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. There are also alpacas.
1: For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewallfellowship.com events, or you'll find us on social media.
3: All right, y'all, if you can stand, we'll go out and pray our benediction, get you dismissed. Next week, we will continue right on, next verse, dealing with another interesting pastor scripture where we talk about the relationship between faith and works, and so looking forward to getting into that with you next week. So may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you, and may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. May our Father in heaven always grant you the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. Love you all so much. You ought of We'll see you all next week. Mm.